excellent. You just do whatever you want. Hey, we're going to get started now. We're going to get started so we can get everyone back to work on time. And you're going to turn that one off, are you? We're very pleased to have Terrence Keeley with us. In addition, We're going to get started now so we can get everyone back to work on time. Terence Keeley is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. He's part of our Center for the Study of Science. He's a clinical professor of biochemistry at the University of Buckingham, where he was formerly the vice chancellor, which I've come to learn in the UK means you were the chancellor, the head guy. And the University of Buckingham is dis distinctive because it's the only strictly private university in, uh, in England, which means that uh, Terence is a bit of a rogue because when he was vice chancellor, he insisted that there be no safe spaces on campus, <laughs> unlike what we see today. And uh, I've only gotten to know him personally in the last couple of weeks while he's been visiting with us. But we had dinner last night, and I asked him who his football team was. Oh. <laughs> thinking, you know, Man U, Chelsea, Arsenal, and he said, I have absolutely no interest in sports. <laughs> so the evening was spent with us sharing sports analogies like head fake and red zone that he didn't understand. And he shared with us some words that appeared to be English, but we didn't understand. He uh, got his doctorate from Oxford, and uh, you know, when you meet people who have uh, graduated from Oxford and Cambridge, you can usually, it's usually a safe bet that they're pretty smart. Terence uh, went to uh, Oxford and uh, actually taught at Cambridge, so that must mean he's very smart. He is the co-author with Madonna of the book Sex. Oh, oh, no, I'm sorry, actually, no, he's the sole author of Sex, Science, and Profits, I'm sorry. It was originally called Science and Profits, but the uh, the publisher decided that they called it Sex, Science, and Profits. It would do better in Amazon searches, <laughs> which I think has proven to, uh, proven to be the case. Um, but uh, Terence is a spokesperson for a very important idea. Um, I often challenge friends in the United States who don't share our point of view and our values to uh, name the sectors of our, uh, of our economy and our society that are the most problematic, the most screwed up, they usually say healthcare and education. And then I ask them, name the sectors where the government is most involved. And they say healthcare and education. And I ask them to you know, think about that a little bit. Um, we obviously have a wonderful um, uh, system of science that uh, people are increasingly insistent that the government get in, involved with. And um, some of the merry mischief that therefore takes place, uh, we've heard a little bit about um, from, from Ron and the global warming, a great example, and uh, it, we see in, in, in Pat's work. And I th so I think that um, um, if we are not to uh, inhibit the tremendous progress that we've enjoyed as humans, it's important that we don't uh, 
don't monkey with, uh, with the process of science and discovery and uh, advancement of, uh, of human ingenuity, for which, uh, as I say, Terrence is a uh, most effective, effective spokesperson. So we're looking forward to your discussion. Thanks. Thank you, Peter. So thank you very much for having invited me. Like the other two speakers, I shall keep to time. Um, it's a real thrill to be here today. I think, I know that not everybody in this room is a libertarian. I know there are some guests. But <laughs> nonetheless, there are more libertarians in this room, I have no doubt, than there are in the whole of the United Kingdom. <laughs> so for me, this is just wonderful. And for being here, I really must thank Pat Michaels, who's the director of the Cato Center for the Study of Science, um, who's befriended me over the last 18 months, and I've befriended him. And as a consequence, I'm here, and it's lovely to be here. And of course, I thank Peter. I'm talking in a microphone here, so if, I, if you can't hear me, you must let me know, and I'll move closer to this. The, the title of the talk is Truman, Eisenhower, and Lyndon Johnson were right to be skeptical about the government funding of science. But actually, I've decided to add two more presidents to that list. So my talk now is Buchanan, the first President Johnson, Truman, Eisenhower, and Lyndon Johnson were skeptical about the funding of science, and they were right to be, and I'm going to tell you why. The founding document for science funding in this country, the founding document for science policy in this country, was written, but not the one you're going to think of, also in 1776. It was written by Adam Smith. And he dedicates a tremendous amount of space to showing that it is a myth, because even then people propagated the myth, that it is a myth that governments need fund science. Science, he says, is not a public good. Science, he says, does not need public funding, and it is also a myth that you need basic science before you get applied or technological science. In fact, he says, if you look at the early Industrial Revolution, which is, of course, what he was involved in, it is obvious it's all the other way that it's the technologists and the engineers and the people in business who are making the advances, and the universities are scrabbling to catch up. And that every penny that government spends on science is wasted. Now, whether or not you agree with that, the fact is that in 1776, in this country, your founding fathers did agree with that. And so this country was created with the federal government not spending a penny on science. The first federal intervention in science comes thanks to another Englishman called Smithson, who dies and who then leaves in his will, and I will quote from his will, to fund at Washington under the name of the Smithsonian Institution an establishment for the increase and diffusion of knowledge amongst men. His half a million dollars, which was a lot of money in those days, arrives on these shores in 1838. But that act allowing the money to be spent doesn't get passed till 1846, eight years later. Why? Because there are so many people in Congress who think it's just wrong for the government to spend money on science 
even if the money is coming from someone else. And some of the statements made in Congress were remarkable. This, by the way, brings me to my first president out of order, because this is Andrew Johnson, and Andrew Johnson led the opposition in the House. He was then uh, a representative from Tennessee, and he led the opposition in the House, and he spoke very powerfully against accepting the money, although the really inflammatory statements were made in the Senate. And I shall just read a couple of statements that senators from South Carolina made in the Senate. William Preston said that this gift was too cheap, and every whippersnapper vagabond might think it proper to have his name distinguished in the same way if we accept this money from Smithson. John Calhoun from South Carolina said, it is beneath the dignity of the United States to receive presents of this kind from anyone. And then he became a bit more philosophical. We must look carefully at the extent of our power. This government is a trust established by the states with a specific capacity, education not included. What are we to do with this money? There's no difficulty in that. It must be returned to the heirs. What particularly inflamed Andrew Johnson was that the money was then invested in bonds in Arkansas. Half the money was then lost. And as a consequence of that, Congress decided to make up the difference plus interest from taxpayers' money. And Johnson was furious. And if you read the biographies of Johnson, he's constantly denying for the rest of his career that he's a fixed enemy. That's the expression, he's a fixed enemy of the Smithsonian. But he is a fixed enemy of the Smithsonian because he never forgives them for A, having been an initial drain on the economy. But he then goes on to say, you mark my words, for the rest of its existence, the Smithsonian will continue to be a drain on the taxpayer. And indeed, he's right. You may not use the word drain, but today, the Smithsonian gets 70% of its income from the federal taxpayer and only 30% from its own resources. So my first of five presidents is Andrew Johnson, who could not be more opposed to the whole concept of the government funding science. What's interesting, by the way, just as a parallel, is the similar congressional opposition to the creation of the National Gallery of Art in, in the Mall in, in Washington. And when Andrew Mellon uh, proposed to give $15 million to build a building and $80 million worth of art, there was a real five-hour debate in the Senate with many, many congressmen and senators independently opposing it. I'll just quote one uh, speech from Congressman Wright Patman, who said, this, president, this precedent is a very bad one. If we allow Mellon the privilege, Hearst and Morgan will come in next with an offer just as attractive, i.e. we don't want philanthropy because they might crowd out uh, what the government is trying to do. So my first of five presidents totally opposed to the government funding of science, reflecting the culture of the day, is Johnson. The next government intervention in the funding of science comes with the land-grant colleges, the so-called Moral Act, but was originally a moral bill in 1859, which James Buchanan vetoed. And this is what he said. This bill will injuriously interfere with the existing colleges in the different states. Those colleges have proved to be great blessings to the people, but many of them are poor, and they sustain themselves with difficulty. The effect on them of creating an indefinite number of rival colleges sustained by the endowment of the federal government 
It's not difficult to determine. So the moral act, or the moral bill, the land graft colleges, the idea was that the federal government would give huge tracts of land to the states, who we're talking about millions of acres, by the way, who would then sell the land and use the money to endow Texas A&M, agricultural and mechanical colleges in the states. And Buchanan says this is wrong for two very important reasons. First, as the quote here says, you're going to simply crowd out the private sector. Why should the government use taxpayers' resources to create institutions which will only have the effect of crowding out the private sector? It's a double negative whammy, one. But the other point he makes, which I haven't quoted here, but it's implied here when he talks about the poverty of the existing colleges, the problem with agriculture in America in 1859 was the problem of overproduction. The farmers were poor because they were producing too much food, so there was no profit in it for them. This is a perennial problem. We English had corn laws for hundreds of years because of the problem of trying to make profit out of agriculture. And Buchanan also said, what is the point of subsidizing education agriculture to a sector that's already producing too much food? And so for these two very good reasons, he vetoes it. They come in, of course, three years later, when Lincoln is your president. Um, and Lincoln, of course, as we all know, did not believe in free markets. He believed in a very dirigible state, him and Clay. Um, but the other, con the other caveat he installed was that these colleges had to introduce a reserve officer training corps so that they had a double function. A, to educate farmers, and it wasn't really about educating farmers, it was about giving them degrees to raise their social standing. That was really what it was about. And also trying to persuade them to engage in more sustainable farming and less slash and burn because of this problem of productivity. But that's not the real thing. The real thing is you raise the social standing of farmers, they're more likely to support you in your civil war, and you at the same time create officer training corps. So that is the second government intervention, federal government, in, in, in science in this country. But it is not very big. And you get until a very fascinating natural experiment. You get us to the 1940s. Between 1776 and 1940, the federal government basically spends no money on science in this country. Yes, the Moral Act gets through, but these are largely one-off payments. Thereafter, the colleges and the states take over the, the care of the colleges. By 1890, as we heard earlier, America has already become the richest country in the world, having overtaken the British, which by definition means that America is the most technologically advanced country in the world, in the complete absence of the government funding of science. And I'll talk about that just what the real implications of that are in a minute. But in any case, what's interesting is that you become the richest country in the world under conditions of complete laissez-faire and the most technologically advanced. But then someone challenges Adam Smith, and it's Vannevar Bush, or Vannevar Bush, as he may be called, who in 1945 has a problem on his hands. He is ultimately in charge of government funding of science, which just takes off, of course, in 1940. Manhattan Project and all the other big defense projects. And he's got all these scientists that he's employing. And suddenly there's a threat that they, may be, they become unemployed, or even worse, might have to go to industry and earn their money doing something useful for the economy. He is concerned. 
and all these scientists he's employing in Washington. So he writes a book called Science, the Endless Frontier. And what it says, very plainly, is it's very simple. He says, look, we won the war by investing in science and developing an atom bomb. We can do the same in peacetime. If we invest, the government invests in science, we can transform the economy, aeroplanes, whatever. And this is an argument that persuades Congress very successfully. And in 1947, Congress presents Truman with a bill to create something called the National Science Foundation. And Truman vetoes it. These are his words. The proposed National Science Foundation would be divorced from control by the people to such an extent that implies a distinct lack of faith in the democratic process. The National Science Foundation, the proposed National Science Foundation, was to be created on the model of what the scientists wanted. What happened was the legislators went to the scientists and said, we want to give you lots and lots of money. How would you like to receive it? And they said, well, we are prepared to accept it under various circumstances, one of which is we want complete control. We want this money to be distributed purely on the basis of peer review. And those scientists who say that other scientists are good, well, they're the ones who make the determination where the money should go. And the president of the National Science Foundation should be appointed by the scientists. Perhaps it should always be the president of the National Academy. Who knows? But it should be the scientists running the thing on their own terms. Truman had a very different vision. He agreed that we probably did need a National Science Foundation, though he wasn't sure about that, actually. But he certainly didn't believe that public money should just be given to scientists to spend as they wish. He wanted, in fact, scientists to become civil servants. He wanted them, rather like the 1930s, actually, he wanted the amount of money distributed to the states to be in proportion to their population. And he wanted, as I said, scientists to be largely employees. And so the scientists refused that. And when they offered what they wanted, Truman said no. And there it would have stayed, but for the Cold War. But the Cold War put such a pressure on the defense industries to come up with new R&D that the demand for new scientists became very real, not for commercial economic reasons, but for reasons of defense. And so in the end, Truman was forced in 1950, the same year the National Security Council was created, for the same reasons, to pass an NSF. It was a compromise NSF, so he, remained the, he retained the power to appoint the director. But thereafter, it was peer-reviewed and the scientists running it along their own lines. Uh, but it was the war that persuaded Truman to change his mind. Was it a good idea? We come now to my fourth president, Eisenhower. In 1961, as you all know, he gave his famous military-industrial complex speech on his resignation, his retirement. He is very damning about the consequences of the government funding of science. This is what he says. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. A dramatic expansion in basic and applied research may be suggested as the only way forward. But we must maintain balance between the private and public economies. The prospect of domination of all the nation's uh, scholars by federal employment, project allocation, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. The free university was historically the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, but a government research contract has become virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. What he says 
is this huge expansion of government funding for science is destroying the American university. The American university is no longer speaking truth unto power. It's saying to power, tell us what you want, Mr. Powerful Person, and we'll give you the science that you ask for. It is the prostitution of the American university and the loss of its love of freedom in exchange for government money that Eisenhower identifies in this most important speech as actually fully as threatening as the military-industrial complex. And actually, if you look at the space he de dedicates to the corruption of universities by the government funding of science compared to the space he delegates to the military-industrial complex, he's obviously more concerned about that. And he considers it clearly, the words are unmistakable, to have been a historic mistake. And finally, I come to my last president, Lyndon Johnson. Because Lyndon Johnson was not a man who gave a damn about the independence of universities. However, he was a man who fully understood, well, let me read you what he said. In 1966, when he launched Medicare, these are the words he used as part of his speech. A great deal of basic research has been done, but I think the time has come to zero in on the targets by trying to get this knowledge fully applied. I have been participating in the appropriations for years. There are hundreds of millions of dollars, actually billions of dollars, but anyway, there are hundreds of millions of dollars that have been spent on laboratory research. Now, presidents, in my judgment, need to show more interest in the specific results of that research. I am going to show an interest in the results, whether or not we get any. Very important phrase, whether or not we get any. I'm going to show an interest in them. Johnson had picked up on the fact that the scientists had broken their promise. We were told in 1945 by Vannevar Bush that if there was this huge expansion of the NSF, the NIH, the whole thing of British and American science, there would be a boost to the economy. There would be more basic science and therefore there would be more applied science and all sorts of wonderful things would happen. But Johnson amongst other things, had commissioned a project known as Project Hindsight. And he'd spent $10 million just on this little project, which is a lot of money for the project, because what Project Hindsight was, he asked a group of scholars to identify the major advances that had been made in defense research. He took that as a, I say the thing, defense research in the years since the Second World War. And they'd identified 700, 700 technological advances that had been important to defense research in this country since the Second World War. And of those 700, just two were rooted in basic science. And of those two, they came from basic science that had been funded by the free market before the Second World War. Johnson had picked up on the very clear fact that the government funding of science had delivered neither economic growth nor technological growth, and he wanted to do something about it. Now, in fact, it could have been predicted and was predicted that the government funding of science in America would achieve precisely nothing because the historic examples were so very considerable. The two great economies of the last 200 years, by the way, this lady's not leaving because of my speech. She warned me she'd be leaving. <laughs> the two great economies of the last 200 years, as we all know, in the 19th century was the British economy, and the 20th century was the American economy. They're the two great successes. The British economy was completely laissez-faire. We were 
you got your ideas of laissez-faire in science from us, and we were utterly committed to laissez-faire in science. We just didn't fund science, period. Didn't fund it. End of story. Didn't stop us leading the world through the agricultural revolution. Didn't stop us leading the world through industrial revolution. Didn't stop us creating the steam engine, the steel industry, cotton. Didn't stop us producing scientists of the quality of Darwin or Kelvin or Maxwell or Dalton. I could go on with an amazing list of um, British technological and scientific advances, all funded under the free market, not a penny of government funding. But the same is true of the states. You remain equally free market until 1940. So the country that overtakes free market Britain is free market America. And yet you produce men of the quality of Edison or Tesla or the Wright brothers. Just here in Washington, you produce, um, in Chicago, sorry. <laughs> You produce scientists who win Nobel Prizes of the quality of Michelson or Millikan. You import people like Einstein, who work at the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton, all funded, of course, privately. In fact, by 1940, by 1940, 80% of all research and development, including pure science in America, is funded by the private sector. Of the remaining 20%, 10% is for agricultural research, which is a vote-winning tactic. There's no need for agricultural research. You're still producing more food than you know what to do with. Um, and the other 10% is for defense research. And I won't go into the economics of defense research, but, but defense research is only about a tenth as valuable as civil research for economic growth. I have no economic value whatsoever. So as late as 1940, you are producing an fantastic array of a pure and applied science, totally dependent, happily so, on the free market. The countries that fail even to converge on Britain, let alone overtake, are the countries that ignore Adam Smith, France and Germany particularly. By 1800, France and the German states, their governments are investing vastly in science. In fact, from Colbert from the middle of the 17th century, the French are investing in an array of scientific institutions. And they do produce good science, as it happens. But they don't get economic growth. In 1800, France and Germany enjoyed only 75% of the GDP per capita of Britain. By 1900, France and Germany enjoyed 75% of the GDP per capita of Britain. They've increased, as we've increased, but they hadn't converged, let alone done what the Americans had done, not only converge, but overtake. The historic evidence is overwhelming. Economic leadership and scientific leadership goes to the countries where the government doesn't tax the people and allows the market freedom. And that is true to this day. The most interesting contemporary economic econometric study was performed, funnily enough, by the governments of the OECD. The OECD, of course, is the club, the government club of the leading economic nations. And in 2003, the OECD published a book, you can get it on the web, it's called OECD, The Sources of Economic Growth in OECD Countries, 2003. That's what it's called, published in 2003. It's an enormous piece of work. It takes just under 30 years looking at the 21 leading economies between 1971 and 1998. And they look at a, over 100 different parameters that could determine rates of economic growth, much of which makes sense to economists rather than ordinary people uh, like me. But amongst the many parameters of this multivariate analysis, this very complicated analysis, they look at the rates of investment in public and private R&D, research and development. And there's enormous variation. It's a very interesting experiment. 
Some countries, like Australia and New Zealand, in this 30-year period, had a philosophy that if you, wanted, if you were a company and you wanted to do science or research, you didn't go to venture capitalists, you didn't go to the bank, you just went to the government and asked for a grant. And you were given the money. It sounds incredible, but that's how it was in Australia and New Zealand. At the other extreme, you have countries like Switzerland and Japan, and contrary to myth, MITI in Japan didn't give out money to companies. That's, that's one of the myths. Uh, these are completely laissez-faire. As late, actually, as 1989, Switzerland and Japan, uh, the, the, the Japanese crisis, so until the Japanese crisis, um, are laissez-faire in science, and almost laissez-faire in basic science. It's an extraordinary experiment. And then you have everybody else somewhere in the middle. So from the point of view of the OECD economists, this is a marvelous experiment. You go from some countries where almost all R&D and science is funded by the state to others where practically nothing is funded by the state, and lots of countries in the middle. So what happens? Well, let me read the words of the OECD. And by the way, the OECD was very unhappy. They didn't want to publish this. You can see them saying this almost through gritted teeth and crying. <laughs> the negative results, the negative results for public R&D are surprising. They certainly are. What they found was a direct positive correlation between the private funding of R&D and economic growth. There was no correlation between the public funding of R&D and economic growth. And actually, and this is what the OECD themselves say, there appeared to be a negative correlation because R&D, as all the way back to uh, Buchanan had predicted, what R&D was doing was it was crowding out, publicly funded R&D was crowding out private R&D, and it's the private R&D that gives you economic growth. Now, why does this matter? And I'm coming to the end of my time, and I want to keep to time. So um, I'm going to focus on the big philosophical point and then just make a couple of little points, or I might let the little points come up in the questions. Why does this matter? You could argue, well, does it matter? Mr. Obama spends a few tens or hundreds of millions, uh, billions of dollars every year on science. Well, you know, it still produces lots of nice science. That's true, by the way. It obviously does produce nice science the way the French under Colbert produce nice science. And what does it matter if it doesn't, you know, still get nice pictures of the planet Earth from NASA? i tell you why it matters. It matters because the most important economic activity of all is economic growth. Goods and services, very important, and we're all, well, most of us are libertarians in this room, and we, both, we all understand the libertarian argument that goods and services are better under the free market. But if the most important function of all is economic growth, without which you don't have goods and services, and if economic growth depends on research, which it does, and if there's a consensus that only governments will fund research, and that is the consensus, then as libertarians we've sold the past. What we've said is the most important economic function of all is growth, and that depends only on government. And by selling that pass, we have greatly weakened the role of libertarianism in the political debate. We've weakened ourselves as important people because we're admitting that only government provides this most important of services, which is economic growth. So we have to win this argument. We don't want to make enemies too much. We're not going to say, let's privatize all the science tomorrow. That would obviously be a mistake. But what we have to say is, look, yes, governments can fund science, 
But don't fool yourselves. All you're doing is crowding out the private sector, and that's the one that actually gives you economic growth. Fortunately, there's still quite a lot of private science left, largely because governments are running out of money anyway. And so we have to win the most important argument of all in the sense of economics. We have to say governments are funding science, but only to damage the ultimate enterprise of economic growth. We are right that the government funding of science is a mistake. That's why it matters, because otherwise we marginalize ourselves in the most important discussion of all in economics. Now, I'm happy to explain why science isn't a public good, but I will just end up with one rhetorical question and then shut up. We are told that science is a public good. We're told that anybody can just go to the journals and read the papers or go to the patent office and read the patents. It's all publicly published and therefore it's a public good. Well, Einstein published his papers on relativity over a hundred years ago. We're not talking about modern science here. We're talking about very, very old science, relativity. It's practically medieval in scientific terms. How many of you in this room could go to the journals and read those papers and understand them? And this is old science. If it's that difficult to understand old science, just think how difficult it would be to understand modern science. None of you, except the very, very few of you, would be qualified for 30 seconds to even understand the title of most papers these days. <laughs> it, it, it's true. The only people for whom science is genuinely a public good are fellow scientists. And the only way fellow scientists can sustain their expertise such that they can read other people's science is by doing their own science. You actually have to publish your own science to be part of the club, to be invited to the meetings, to understand the other papers. It's a straight quid pro quo. And if you do the sums, it's very easy to do these sums. You can show that it costs just as much overall to copy science as to do it. It's not a public good. It never was a public good. I published a paper last year with my good friend Martin Ricketts, who's a professor of economics at Buckingham, and we got it amazingly in Research Policy, which is the top journal in this field, which I don't think has ever published a paper in its entire history advocating that governments don't need to fund science. And yet they published our paper. We called it Modelling Science as a Contribution Good because the maths is ineluctable. If you actually look at the facts, science is not a public good. It is a, it's not a private good either. It's a contribution good, but it acts as a private good. We have allowed the scientists and the socialists to persuade us that governments have to fund science and therefore ultimately our electricity and economies depend on nice people like Mr. Obama, and that was a mistake. Thank you very much. So, I see there's a question there, and I've been asked to take two questions at a time. So I'm gonna take that question there and that question there. Can I start with you, sir? Uh, I just wonder where you stand on uh research for medical reasons. Medical, yeah. Uh, could you explain uh, the scientific accomplishment of the Soviet Union and North Korea? Yeah. Um, uh, let me take the medical thing. In Britain, the medical charities spend more on research and development than the government's medical research council. Uh, the Wellcome Trust, until Bill Gates's outfit, which is a fantastic outfit, by the way, I, I, that's the wrong word, was the biggest charity in the world. There is no evidence of which I'm aware 
that if governments didn't fund medical research, that those every day people are dying of heart attacks, and, and those people are leaving, would, would be leaving money in their wills if, if, if they felt that the crowding out was even less. Um, so my, my, my response to you is that the one area of science, judging by the example of Britain, or even Bill Gates with all his malaria research, is that there's one area of research that simply doesn't need government funding because the need is so obvious to the average person. And that's the empirical evidence as well. Even, even the Pasteur Institute in France, and France doesn't believe in the market, even the Pasteur Institute is funded by charitable contributions. So that even the French can fund medical research uh, in the market. Normal people can as well. As for the Soviet Union, what is really interesting is that the Soviet Union invested a greater percentage of GDP on R&D before it collapsed in 1989 than any other country in the world, 3.7%. The Americans were about 2.7% at the time, the Brits even less. So the Soviet Union was investing hugely in research and development, admittedly too much physics, too much defense as opposed to you know, more civil, but that was all utterly wasted money. And so the Soviet Union won lots and lots of Nobel Prizes, uh, if you look at the Soviet economy in 1989, the Russians and the Japanese, compare them, the Japanese GDP per capita was possibly 20 times greater than Russia's. Japan had won, I think, three Nobel Prizes, and Russia had won over 30. So, yes, Russia had invented hugely in research and development, wonderful science, wonderful Nobel Prizes, and the result was the devastation of their country. You covered government funding of science from an economic standpoint. How about from a scientific standpoint? Do you think government funding of science could corrupt or bias science to some extent? To quote Pat Michaels, you think? <laughs> <laughs> I got into this purely accidentally. I was an honest, dropping biochemist in the 1980s doing my science. When to my amazement, the University of Oxford in 1985, of which I am a graduate, uh, offered Mrs. Thatcher an honorary degree, which she then accepted, which they then withdrew as a way of publicly humiliating her. It was a shocking episode of academic arrogance. And I, although I was an honest biochemist, I loved Mrs. Thatcher. This, my, so I couldn't believe that Oxford, which I also loved, had insulted Mrs. Thatcher so much. So I started finding out what was going on. And what was going on was that the scientific community, it was, a, it was very big at the time, ran an organisation called Save British Science, and it was all based on the premise that Mrs Thatcher was destroying British science. And she was destroying British science by cutting funding to British science. And as a consequence, our share of papers globally was going down. And it was a totally dishonest campaign. I mean, it was extraordinary. The entire scientific community, from the present to the Royal Society downwards, was engaged in a mass distortion of the truth. The reality was, and it only took me six weeks to work this out, was that yes, government funding for R&D was going down in Britain, or at any rate, it wasn't increasing at the rate it was before, but the private sector's rate of growth was more than compensating. So the total budgets for British research were actually expanding at an un unex unexpected rate, actually, extraordinary great. And yes, 
the share of British papers globally was going down, but so was America's, so was France's, and so was Germany's, because that was the rise of the Pacific Rim and the Mediterranean Rim. And so our science was doubling in size, as was America's, by the way, every 15 years, which is an amazing rate of growth. But the Japanese or the Greeks or the Italians or the Koreans, they were doubling their science every 10 years. Our absolute growth was terrific. Our relative growth was less than... But these people were catching up as they jolly well should have done. What shocked me was when I probed... They knew very well they were telling untruths. The entire community knew, at least the leaders of the community knew, that these were false statistics. And in the end, the presence of the Royal Society, in a way, I've, I've never got over the sheer outrageous lack of shame when they finally lost... I've written about this in, in the book, by the way. I'm not, you know, you, all the references are in here. When he finally realised that he could no longer pretend any longer that British science was in decline, he then just switched the argument like that. And he simply said, actually, the truth is, British science is the best science in the world, apart from America's, and therefore the government should continue funding us because we're such good value for money. <laughs> so, yes, and if you really want to hear about distortion of incentives and things and how scientists will do anything to satisfy donors, Pat Michaels is very passionate on the subject and will tell you how Global warming scientists do this because that's where the grants are. I don't know if you want to say anything, Pat, or shall I just... OK, well, some other time. I know you have an opportunity to talk to this audience on some other occasion. The answer is absolutely... The trouble is, the trouble is, all donors do this. You can show very clearly that industrial donors distort. So what happens if you're a drug company? Let's say you're a drug company and you've got a drug and you want to sell it. What you do is you commission 10 separate studies... Let's pretend this drug is actually rather bad for you. Not, not, not won't kill you, but it's actually, on balance, rather bad for you. You commission ten separate studies. Statistically, seven will show that this damages you. Two will show it doesn't seem to make any difference. And one will show it's good for you, because that's just how stats work. Which study do you publish if you're a drug company? <laughs> and, 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 and the scientists go along with it, because that's where the next grants are coming from. So actually, the answer is you need a plurality of funding. You need the philanthropic, you need the, you need the trusts, you need the big foundations, you need the university endowments. You must have those. And you mustn't crowd them out with government funding. But you can't just rely on for-profit science either. Or you get situations like Edison. The reason you, in this country, electrocute your convicted criminals is that Edison was trying to destroy Tesla's AC current. I see you're nodding your head. Edison had invented... DC current, and to his horror, AC turned out to be better. So Edison got a contract with the state of New York to kill their, their, their criminals with Tesla's AC current. He could then advertise, look, AC kills you. <laughs> Buy my DC. I mean, so the free market is not saintly. So there is a role for the government. There is a role for the government. And the role for the government is to say, actually, cigarette smoking may not always be really good for you, you know, perhaps. So, but the trouble is, at the moment, what happens is that governments simply support industrial research. You, you get a very unhealthy, as Mr. Eisenhower said, military-industrial complex, all sorts of other... There is a role for the government in acting as um, uh, a sort of judge of other people's science, as long as it really does that. But that's his only role. There is no economic value to it whatsoever, is my answer to you. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have a question about the comparison you drew between uh, British and French and German economies' expansions or, or rates, rates of economic progress. 
uh, and wondering why uh, France or Germany didn't fall behind given their commitment to public. You know, you, you mentioned after a century they had maintained about the same status whereas the U.S. had come and surpassed the British. Do you think the reason that they didn't fall further behind is that they were able to import the technological and scientific advances of the British? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I mean, if you think of the great discoveries of the 19th and 20th centuries, what did we discover? We in Britain uh, discovered the railway. Uh, and electricity. You discovered um, um, the, the uh, aeroplane. Uh, I'm thinking about the big technological discoveries. Can you think of a really big French technological discovery? I can't. Um, the Germans came up with a motor car. That was one of the rare examples of German science that was not funded by the state. The German car was, was, was invented, the, the motor car was invented by individuals acting as individuals. Nothing to do with government funding of, of science, interestingly. So Germany's only great example. So, Yes. Oh, I must go. This is the last question. I, I can take a hint. So, yes. <laughs> no lights, no, no red lights. <laughs> um, uh, so, yes, they, 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 they were always 75% only. And, of course, when you're catching up, life is much easier. Of course, in the end, the French and Germans overtook Britain in the 1960s. But that's completely different. That's because we adopted socialism and all sorts of nonsense like that. But one of the reasons the Germans lost the First and Second World Wars is in 1914, which is when we went into the First World War, 1917 in your case, and 1939, for us, 1941 for you, when we went into the First and Second World Wars, Germany had only 75% of the GDP per capita of Britain on both occasions. And the myth of German technological superiority. Where do these myths come from? I hate to sound like the previous speakers, but where do these myths come from? It's most extraordinary. It just was never true. Yeah. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> Terence, thanks so much. Um, it's not surprising that you know more about British history than I do. But it is uh, humbling, maybe I could say humiliating, that you know more about American history <laughs> than I do, which just shows how smart you can be if you don't waste half your life watching sports. <laughs> because last night, uh, last night Harrison and I were whipping out the stats, and Terrence was pretty impressed, and I'm not so impressed anymore. But uh, I do want to recognize Fred Young is here. Fred Young, our longtime Cato board member and uh, one of our most generous supporters. A, uh, also a, a great champion in the liberty movement, a longtime board member of the Reason Foundation and involved with, with many groups. Although, uh, when you gave Fred a round of applause, Fred, when he gives a talk, always says, to save time, we're just going to clap once, so that he just... <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, all of you who support Cato, uh, we're so appreciative, and, and uh, thank you so much. And this is obviously a very important time of year for us, so as you're... Uh, as you're uh, finalizing your year-end giving plans, we'd obviously love to figure as prominently as, uh, as we can. We appreciate uh, your support, making our work possible, and also, just as individuals, your advocacy of our values, of liberty, of limited government, uh, cocktail parties, dinners, everything, it just makes a huge difference. So thanks so much, and thanks for being with us today. <laughs>